back to the Brothers Book Club podcast. Travis here with episode 41, perhaps 42. It's funny, I just looked at the number and I just forgot it. It's one of those episodes. It's after episode 40, I believe, let's call it 42. I'm here today with a Charlotte Perkins Gilman short story collection. There's three short stories in this episode of a little Penguin Black classic. Uh, they've titled it The Yellow Wallpaper for probably the longest of the three stories. And joining me today for this review is honorary guest host. Let's just call you guest host now, Amanda. You're in it. You're This is it. You've signed on. Sweet. <laughs> You're, it's official now. Yeah, I'm going to put it. We're going to put it in ink. We'll get you on a contract. Yeah. <laughs> starting salary is just you have to give us a lot of your free time and okay. that's the end of it that's the what well, you're signing away sounds okay <laughs> but so you know if you can agree to that i think as we'll get to in a second with the review if if the reading stays this good i don't think it's a very disagreeable proposition not at all yeah i think this uh reading like this keeps it easier um as i mentioned we've got three short stories um i know you were familiar with the the title story, The Yellow Wallpaper, as was I beforehand. Had right. you ever read any uh, other Perkins Gilman works? Uh, no, actually, I haven't. This is so I was really excited, actually, to be able to read these other stories. And mm -hmm. if we get a chance to do Herland, I am really excited about that as well. Yeah, I found a free Audible version. We'll cover that at the end of oh, the episode, nice. of course. But yeah, I, th I think we can make that happen because it does seem pretty short, though the and the setup of that story intrigues me, but yeah, let's, we can chat about that at the end. Yeah. I, I too had the, the same level of familiarity. I feel like the yellow wallpaper is such a taut, uh, short story at probably most of the college level, I guess. Like, I don't know if any high school classes using this, though they definitely could, uh, just in my opinion, I guess. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you take any American literature class that covers really any topic or subject, they could sneak this one in. I think I had to read this in two different American lit classes of different, you know, themes or time periods or varieties in college. So this is, this definitely makes the rounds in sort of academic circles. And again, I, I wouldn't be shocked if it was in a high school class. Yeah. I think I first read this story in college, but when I was um, an English high school teacher, I, I tried to teach it to my class and I was not in like the best school anyway, teaching. <laughs> so they mm -hmm. just were like so uninterested, but it's fine. It's a great story. It's funny, too, because I think <laughs> actually for a high school read, it has a ton to recommend it just in terms of, you know, literary things you can draw out of it. Yeah. And teach. I actually it's weird. Yeah. When I was reading it, I think uh, I, too, was a teacher. If listeners didn't know that Amanda and I both taught at different times. Um, and my brain is just too broken now to not think through that teacher lens, at least a little, you know, yeah. it's still like, I'm still reading things and being and thinking like, Oh, I could chunk it this way, or this is the page I would do this with. And so anyway, my brain's just irreparably damaged, whatever. But I think that's what makes your podcast so interesting is that you, you break it down in interesting ways instead of just, a like other podcasts or other people who talk about books. It's just, you know, these are my opinions, but you actually go into a, a deeper conversation and you actually make really good points. Oh, I geez. Think, well, yeah. you bring it here to the old eye here. <laughs> uh, no, I'm flattered you say that. Yeah, that's been my, uh, as someone who's tried a couple real life book clubs, though, had and had a successful one going with you and some other friends of ours in Charlotte that kind of just dissipated naturally, mm -hmm. as these things tend to do. But I've actually tried two other ones in Charlotte through bookstores. 
And oh. yeah, that, this is this was basically a response to that because I just found them so deeply uninteresting. Mm-hmm. It, which is, you know, it's too bad. I, people can read and discuss books in whatever they, way they want to, but if your first question at your book club is always like, "If this were in real life, how would you? What would you do?" It's like, man, I'm out. Like, right. I, yeah, I just have no interest in those kinds of questions. Like, if it's not about literary construction, I don't have I don't have as much of an interest anyway. But so that's kind of what we're aiming to do. Hopefully, we can accomplish that today. Let's have you start with the one simile re- uh, sentence simile reviews. This is the new format for the next 18 or 19 episodes. We're going to do a more structured podcast review, and we, we're going to begin with these one sentence similes. So what's yours for uh, for the yellow wallpaper? So mine was, uh, reading this is like hiring a personal chef to make a full course meal for you that not only satisfies your hunger and teases your taste buds, oh, yeah. but also pleases your aesthetics. Sure. Expand on that. You mean there's a little parsley on top? You got a little cilantro garnish? It's it's, it's brightly colored. It's Uh something that incorporates a lot of different kind of textures that you can see, right? It's it's something that doesn't just look like some gray mush, but tastes amazing. It's something that looks amazing as well as tastes amazing. So now allow me to do the really annoying teacher thing and mm-hmm. just say, and now connect that to the story, Amanda. How does that really? <laughs> uh, my teaching voice was so much more uh, patronizing or patronizing than that too. It was way worse. I put on a light version there, but no. Oh. So how does and what what elements of the story just briefly uh, mm-hmm. made it stand out in that way? Uh, just her sense of style. I. The thing that mm-hmm. uh, really drew me to her in the first place with the yellow wallpaper was how wonderfully she plays with language and how succinctly she is able to set tone and mood. And it just, everything that she writes has a purpose. Every single mm-hmm. word, every single form, like all of her format, the structure, everything has a particular purpose. And it's just wonderful to read something and be able to find all these different meanings without being bombarded with, you know, super flowery language that just kind of meanders through the point, but doesn't ever actually like reach the point or, you know, it's it's just wonderfully written. Yeah. There's so many interlocking things that I think work in these. And that, I think we've talked about this broadly in the past, but with short stories, that's kind of what I'm looking for too, is to like, have few pieces and make sure they click, you know, it's like, don't Mm -hmm. overdo it, but also make sure that you have, you know, these interlocking parts, which there's a simile right there, I suppose, in a way, um, a metaphor. Mine is different. I'll explain it briefly though. Um, I thought reading this was like having a friend, maybe high school or middle school, who like secretly learned a skill and I wrote down an instrument because I had a friend in real life who kind of did this, like saved up his lunch money for a year, bought a guitar and then taught himself guitar. And none of us really knew that it was going on. And then one day he just, yeah, I know. And then one day he just showed up and was like, I'm going to rip off this, you know, I'm going to like do this solo and play this intricate, crazy thing. And you're just kind of staggered and you're thinking like, where was this before? What was going on? (laughs) Yeah. Um, that's how I felt reading this, not only within the um, context of the Penguin collection, where you're just like, sometimes we get bogged down because some of these are, are very old or the poetry can be dense or, you know, there's just different things that reading really old text brings as a burden. So this felt that way in terms of the lightness and the surprise, um, but also just, I don't know, the kind of um, weird pride, which seems so weird to say since, you know, not only do I not know this uh, author, but she's been dead for a very long time. 
So I don't know, but I just felt weirdly uh, happy to be reading it and felt like a weird disconnected pride. So yeah, a strange reaction, but I think it's the, it's one that I had. Happy to read it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, Happy to, happy to read it. I suppose I should say. Um, Let's make some connections then. Uh, Let's try and get this relevant to 2020 and our work here is done. We don't have to say anything. It's the me too era. I don't, I mean, what do you want us to say? It's, it's basically three short stories that if your if your feminist literary critique lens doesn't immediately turn on when you read these, and I don't know what you're reading, frankly, yeah. I, I don't know. Like, of course, you can analyze literature in a million ways, but that's it's going to jump to the forefront in any of these. Uh, maybe not the ghost one as much, but even then, that one gets there too. I think for sure. Anyway, so you've got myriad topics here. Like we've got pickup lines from schmarmy dudes we've got gaslighting we've got failures to listen to others uh we've got hysteria and claims over being overly emotional and untrustworthy there's love triangles and jealousy romance and and the dynamics between men and women and those things it's i mean what you know i don't know it's got it all i agree yeah uh definitely the me too movement i would even broaden it out if you didn't want to necessarily look at it through a feminist lens which I Mm -hmm. agree. I mean, she's known as a feminist writer. Um, But if you didn't want to look at it through that, then you could actually look at it from the lens of just like growing up and, and your adolescence. So being treated, right. So one of the, the the issues that she talks about for women specifically is that they're treated like children um, and they are coddled like children. Right. So in the first story, the yellow wallpaper, her husband, John is, is like, well, it's okay. Don't mm-hmm. worry. You'll feel better because I'm telling you, you're going to feel better. You're it's all That's like mind. my teaching voice. Very good. <laughs> very well, you're welcome. Very well done. Yeah. <laughs> um, but everybody in their adolescence gets treated that way. Even though you feel like you're independent and that you're an adult and that you can take care of yourself, right? You still are treated as though you are a child. So I think even if Mm -hmm. you're not looking at it from a feminist viewpoint, you can look at it from that. And I think you could even with the second story, I I call it the second story, the rocking chair story. Yeah, um, ghost story. Yeah, the, the fighting with your friends, right? These two guys are fighting and it's, you also fight with your friends through your adolescence. So you can relate on that level. And then in the final story, it's the mom pushing a dude on to the daughter. And that you could look at that as, you know, your, your parents telling you like, I know what's best for you. This is what you need to do. And you of course disagree. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. So as one naturally should. (laughs) Yeah. Cause you know, best for yourself. um, Most of the time. You know well, what's the best, t- but you don't always act on that. I should. I say. think I knew better <laughs> what was best in my teenage years than I ever have since it's a direct linear line down. I mm. think it's down. You know, it peaked early, and then ever since then, I've been every year. I question more and more of, of what's best for me. So yeah, I think I can get on board. Yeah, let's uh, let's throw it to you then to start us off for quotes. This is where we like to dive a little deep and uh, get into some literary analytical stuff. Pick a quote and and start us off. Anything that jumped out to you stylistically, thematically? Yeah. Uh, So I'd mentioned before, uh, one of the the things about her writing is just how playful she is with her language and and her mastery of it. And Mm -hmm. so I chose uh, one quote from the third story, which is Old Water. For me, it was the third story. I don't know if that was the third story for you. Yeah, it was actually. We we read them in the same order, weirdly. So nice job. Um, So it says, the big man 
took his second demitasse and sat near the girl. So a demitasse obviously means the small cup versus the big man. So we mm-hmm. see that that playfulness there. And she also um, uses a lot of, which I didn't use in this quote, this quote doesn't have it, but mm-hmm. she uses a lot of alliteration as well, which shows the playfulness with um, and skill with the language. Yeah, I think to me, it's that the, I agree completely there. And the descriptions have, I think that double layer thing going on that we, Mm -hmm. I guess, literary types always enjoy. And that some people can find, I guess, alienating when they think like, that's just a cup. What do you mean the cup has meaning? And I don't know, again, to me, it's just, we have to start with the, the cup has meaning section. If we even have to ask that question, then I'm kind of out book club wise. Hopefully you're listening to the right podcast. Then. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's kind of, yeah, no, I think that's really intriguing. And the thing about her stories too, is that they felt everything felt put in its place in that way. It didn't feel right. waste, uh, wasteful, uh, mm-hmm. the language and the level of description, the sentence I pulled or one of them from the ghost story, the chair story was right from the beginning and the end. Um, it's like the opening, it kind of closes that way. Another way to know that she's constructed something with thought and care and, and can, you know, intrigue and delight the reader is just that statement right there. It's like, oh, the ending brought me back to the beginning, but with a twist. Anyway, the quote says, across some low roof that made a gap in the wall of masonry shot a level, brilliant beam of the just setting sun, touching the golden head of a girl in an open window, fairly lighting up the street with the glory of her sunlit hair. And now I could hear a listener thinking maybe that's overwritten. Those were from actually two different sentences anyway. But that those two descriptions do so much immediately in the story. It's I don't think it's even overly descriptive, right? We've dealt with so many more dense writers and right. authors on this podcast already. So it's like already to me, that's not overly de- like putting putting modifiers in your senses. It doesn't make it evil or bad. Um, and it gets you so many little things to think about the color, the way light informs the story, which mm-hmm. comes up again and again. Another sign that, you know, things are going well when mm-hmm. it's like they've thought about what to, elements to include in the description, the imagery and whatnot. There's archetype there with like how light can be deployed versus how you would expect it, what you'd expect it to mean. And she definitely messes with that. I mean, that's um, illuminating something or shining a light on something kind of happens in the story and also kind of doesn't. So it's got this thematic twist to it as well. And yeah, that it just immediately sets up like four different things we just rattled off, right? And that's her her writing seems to do that again and again. Right. This quote is so great. And it immediately the uh the setting sun, the golden hair, all that yellow light coming through, that also makes you think of like angelic, angel, heavenly. And mm-hmm. then you also the the rooftop with a wall of masonry, right? that also creates that damsel in a tower picture in your mind, which ties into the other um, descriptions that she has for uh, the other characters. It's a good, that's a great connection. I didn't even make that fairy tale-ish connection, but if we were to break down the plot, which on this podcast for new listeners, we really won't do. We're trying to avoid spoilers, quote Mm -hmm. unquote. Um, but that actually, I mean, with how that story concludes is a, <laughs> is yeah. a fitting, yeah, is an extremely fitting description. Uh, and if interpreted that way, it actually presents with a pretty, again, kind of a contrarian take on the how those things usually go. So mm-hmm. anyway, yeah, that's that's well said. Any other quotes stand out to you? Let's get in at least a couple more. Yeah, the from that same story, um, just tying into, again, how uh, concisely she's able to set up the atmosphere and the and the mood. Uh, I chose a, a quote from page thirty-five. Both rooms were full mm-hmm. of the dim phosphorescence of reflected moonlight. Like that's I mm-hmm. just 
when I saw that quote, I was like, oh my gosh, I love that. It sounds so good. And it's short. It's you get a, a very clear feeling from it without her right. having to just beat the metaphor to death or anything. It's just, it's so great. This is a funny and annoying thing that I do uh, in my brain as I read things. And I, and it's funny cause I've tried to tell students or people I'm tutoring about to do this, but it's, it's such bad and good advice at the same time. And it's that when I'm reading a sentence, sometimes I will just try and imagine rewriting it to make it better. Like a la mm. the Charles Dickens misadventure pod I had or whatever. I just think it's, it can help get your brain thinking in different ways. And I'm looking at a sentence like that and like, look at the word phosphorescence. Like what word would I swap for that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't think I have like, and usually it's a good sign in my mind when you have no clue when you're like, I don't know. That's a great, it, it gives me a, it has a mood to it. It, that p- works with the word dim really well. It's like a long word against a short one. And that kind of is good. And I, yeah, I don't know. And, and it also plays off of the word full. So you get that alliteration, full phosphorescence of reflected moonlight. So you get those sounds. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All in, all in a row. Yeah. No, it's yeah. excellent. It's a good one. Um, my other language compliment to her would be just broadly that the w- the way she uses certain verbs, adjectives, et cetera, the fun words, the playful stuff, um, which by the way, when I was Googling, I was trying to find the stories for you and send you copies. It's a little b- behind the seeds to the logistics of the pod. But when I was trying to find the other ones, I did find someone online on a blog post reviewed this also, but it, w- it was like a three paragraph write-up. Anyway, her take on it was that and I, I don't want to say this in a mocking way, though. I was almost immediately laughed just then. But that it was like too descriptive and flowery. And she like pulled a sentence that had some adverbs in it. And she's like, see these adverbs? We got to get rid of these. And God, I always hate restrictive criticism like that, where it's yeah. like, never have any adverbs, man. Don't do it. Like, come on. That's why do we, this language is supposed to be a bit experimental and fun. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't find, I didn't find this overwritten in the slightest. And in that um, blog post, she compared her to like Jane Austen is overwritten. And I'm like, man, reading this next to Jane Austen does not feel the same in any way. And, no, two you know, very different styles. I know we don't have to syntactically do, you know, we don't have to sentence diagram here, nor do I really want to, but it, that just seemed <laughs> way off to me. Uh, it felt way too broad of a criticism. I was like, man, that's bizarre. Anyway, um, to compliment her though, in this regard, the way she uses the verb creep in the yellow wallpaper mm-hmm. story, it's just, that's just essential, impressive writing. It, she has this one word and by the end of it, you're certain you know what it means, and you're also uncertain as to what it ever meant. And it's and if you can do those two things and have that work in a story, I mean, you've done something really remarkable and something really good. Uh, and the quote here that I pulled, it says, it is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep around as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asked me to. For outside, you have to creep on the ground, and everything is green instead of yellow. Now, let's ignore the colors in that quote, because that's a whole different thing in the story, mm-hmm. color archetypes and whatever meanings that we probably won't even have time to get into. I think that image though, in your head, I think when you read that first sentence, creep around your room, you kind of have an image, but then the outside part comes in and it leaves you really put off and maybe thinking, I, I wasn't sure what she meant. Maybe I thought creep around my bedroom was just like, relax. I mean, obviously it, I think crawl or like move on the ground. And then when she evokes the outside thing, she says, you have to do it on the ground, but it's like in your bedroom, then where you creep it. it yeah. And so it's evocative. You think you know what the description meant, and then it switches it on you. It leaves room for your imagination, but also gives you a sense of something kind of eerie and off-putting. And it's it's just excellent. That's just a great sentence that plays very well in that story. Yeah, I agree. There's her use of 
contrast outside versus inside the the green versus the yellow it's yeah it's great great stuff i think and i think too if we you know if we flipped this uh if we flipped our mental switch into book club mode if we were doing full you know spoilers analysis whatever yeah i mean we could do i'm sure people have done a thesis type thing on the oh like we could there's a hundred things you could talk about in there if you really wanted to yeah um, you can't include a bed in a story that's nailed to the ground and then not ask at least 10 different questions about uh, mm-hmm. what's going on in that story especially one that is you know written by a feminist writer yeah. Any final quotes? I think I'm going to just quickly summarize my last one. It was just a long quote about um, in the the water, old water story. Mm-hmm. It was just a quote where she just dunks all over this the male uh, love interest, the kind of antagonist, I guess, in a way in that story. Mm-hmm. And it just, I just love when he she has the um, main character, the, um, oh gosh, what's her name? There we go. It's Ellen. Ellen is the um, kind of, I mean, is, are any of those characters really main? They all kind of get their equal time. Anyway, yeah. Ellen's basically the main character. And so she just keeps replying all right or okay. And he, he keeps asking her to do activities and she's better at him than, at, at most of them. You know, yeah. she's better than him. Yeah. And so she just kind of says, all right. And it says she cheerily agreed. Where that adverb works really well there. You know, come on, adverb. Let's let's give some love to adverbs mm-hmm. sometimes. Like she threw in five adverbs. Yeah. Anyway, and I just wanted to give a quick shout out to that because I think in terms of the language of it, it was brisk and kind of these quick little takedowns over and over and just made for really, you know, quick, uh, jubilant reading. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I also uh, wanted to, to quickly point out was, um, in comparison to the other short stories that I've read with you, which um, were yeah. by De Balzac and Gaskell, but mm-hmm. uh, with De Balzac specifically, one of the criticisms that we had, um, that I had anyway, was uh, that his even though he brought out really good points and opinions and ideas that he wanted to share, they were not incorporated very well. It was just a, a statement mm-hmm. of his thought. And then you were meant to just take that and move on. It, it did very much jar with the rest of the story versus Charlotte Perkins Gilman, who also puts in her own, you know, opinions, ideas, thoughts, but in a way that uh, ties into the narrative and actually it's very subtly done. And I really appreciate that. So one quote that yeah. I pulled from the yellow wallpaper was John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer and that satisfies him. So that mm. there we could take as a commentary on, on either the medical profession, which at that time was run by men or just on husbands or on men in general. But yeah, I thought that was, compared to De Balzac, that was, I think, a little bit better done. Yeah, and it's, I mean, the the ideas of um, comfort versus control and which one, which can give you true satisfaction, there's such intriguing theme stuff in there that you could draw out again, how the how the characters are can be satisfied or dissatisfied and the way that those two things can kind of play against each other, you know, mm-hmm. freedom versus um, comfort and which can lead to which or which creates the other something like that yeah yeah it's it's excellent stuff all around hopefully those quotes illustrated at least a sense of the style uh, as is the goal of that that section i think we did a good job pulling them yeah let's uh conclude the back half of the review with a couple of final things we like to do this is the other kind of deep dive segment we'll do and it's literary corner this is where we go full teacher mode you can't outrun your past folks we're both <laughs> got teaching backgrounds you got to always try and highlight something specific and do a little bit of education 
I, of course, immediately grabbed the Penguin and Oxford Literary Dictionaries here, and I immediately just went to like feminist criticism and critique, but then I drew my hand back and thought, no, Travis, no. <laughs> That's what any person will, would do, and I think... Maybe it's a sign of progress that I my first instinct was we have to talk about that. It's like the main way to read these or the main uh, lens through which these will be analyzed. And then I thought, no, that's you shouldn't have to do anything. Isn't mm-hmm. that kind of one of the victories? I don't know. Yeah, I'm not claiming to be. Um, I, I would say I'm a feminist, but I'm not claiming to be at the forefront of the kind of thinking movement behind it these days. I, you know, I'm not researching or I'm not up on it 100. percent Anyway, so I just pulled something else. I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm going to pick something stranger. And I found a weird one called taponosis. Did you even know what this was? No, I had no idea. Me neither. And that's, it's hilarious. When I have students who ask about, like, in their AP Lang or lit classes, they're asking me about all these figurative language terms and these rhetorical devices. And my comment to them is always the same. No, you can just look these up. The thing is to become good at analyzing, critiquing, synthesizing, etc., the, the words, the terms, who cares? Just keep a dictionary around, Google stuff, it's fine. Like, I don't yeah. know what this was. It's just a t- type of hyperbole, frankly, but mm-hmm. uh, a taponosis is a figurative device, expression, or epithet, which belittles by exaggeration. And I think I found one. Could you read the quote from 47? What What is that that I there, found? There was no young poet more promising than this. He represented all that her own girlhood had longed for all that the highly prosperous mill owner she married had utterly failed to give if her daughter could have what she had missed. And so in the story, it's this mother character who desperately is putting her desire, as you just read it, onto her daughter and kind of kind of super imposing that onto her, putting that burden. Did you find that to be a case of this, of taponosis? Because I'm mixed on it. I th- it was the closest thing I thought I found to it. I, I actually did agree with you that this is uh, taponosis for sure. I mean, you have, uh, there was no young poet more promising than this. That is definitely an exaggeration, especially when right. you read what he says to her and stuff and, and how unimpressed the Ellen is. Uh, the mother is very impressed, but she also was hungry for any kind of poet to come into her life really so yeah that was definitely an exaggeration for sure yeah and i think i wondered too when i read that when i saw that term in the dictionary i was like man i wonder because there's some hyperbole in some of these stories of course and Mm -hmm. this is just a specific type of that subcategory if if you would anyway so i was like "Eh, maybe this moment is it i think in my lens i'm reading it that way because yeah the language you pulled out was the perfect moment also just the contrast then with saying like all that the highly prosperous mill owner she married had utterly failed. Now that's yeah. an interesting one too, because it, immediately it reads like a bit of a mockery because you're like, well, you know, he's, you seem comfortable, like he's highly prosperous. But then again, I could see someone coming at it oppositely and saying, well, yeah, but the point of that line is to illustrate that like love should never be based on like the pragmatic financial conditions of, of life or whatever, mm-hmm. which I think would be a kind of a feminist leaning, I think, or at least having more choice would be. So again, I read it as a, a bit of a uh, taponosis critique. I was like, ah, yeah, that's the uh, author's kind of taking a dig at the mother being too controlling, being overbearing. But I could see someone having a much different interpretation. Yeah, from a feminist slant, I think it would be that the mother is perhaps trying to be controlling in a way, but I think it's more of like the sadness of the cycle uh, where the mother mm-hmm. was forced into a marriage that she was unhappy with in order to... Um, 
get have money and have security, but she's forcing right. her daughter into a marriage where she's got the money and everything now, but she needs the prestige now. So it's it's the this oh, yeah. cycle of of women holding other women down, their children down in a way uh, that if you were to look at it from a feminist perspective, that's how I think that would be read. Yeah, fair. I think that's well said. Did you Google, because in the story, the mother names two poems that the the poet, the romance interest has written that are supposed to be remarkably beautiful. And I half wanted to Google them to see if this was a real person that um, Gilman was maybe kind of critiquing or dunking on, but I, then I didn't. So did you Google those? I didn't. Um, but I do okay. know in Yellow Wallpaper, the doctor that she references was her doctor. Yeah, it's, it calls yeah. it on the Penguin back cover. It actually calls it semi-autobiographical, which yeah. I think given even a even a slight knowledge of history, um, you would know that, that's, that this was like a common treatment of women. There was this hysteria thing and isolation was the main treatment and yada, yada. I mean, that again, my, my history knowledge is fading by the day, but even mm-hmm. I remember talking about that at some point. Did you have a literary corner you want to um, educate us on before we get to reviews? Sure. Um, the thing that I chose actually was uh, anthropomorphism. That's such Great a fun word, word to say. <laughs> Love it. Love it. Uh, so that is just the attribution of human characteristics or behavior to anything that is not human. Right. Um, so, and it's a little bit different from personification uh, in that personification mm-hmm. is used to uh, describe things, right? Not necessarily to give them the quality of, of human characteristics. So, Um, for example, with the wallpaper, right. The movement, the, the woman in it, um, the rocking chair as, as walking. Right. And in old water is it not so much, I guess, anthropomorphism in, in, um, in the same way, but more of like that. I, I saw old, the, the water, the still dark water as the antagonist almost, um, yeah, it's certainly. Well, and then, <laughs> man, again, I want to spoil these so bad, but also not <laughs> though. Also, the savior, <laughs> like yeah, it's yeah. literally in the well, most literal way. Which yeah. we'll just pause there. Again, it would be a good amount to unpack because there's early hints, and again, this is just a, another sign of a submersive story well told. But there's early signs in the story that the water means one thing, and mm-hmm. then the conclusion completely flips it. So you're left to. That that is usually a good thing unless it's random. In this case, it's far from random because the idea has been placed in the story three or four times. And so at the end, you're left to ask good questions and not the bad ones. Right. Um, do you think, is this a good analogy for anthropomorphism in terms of personification? Is it kind of like simile metaphor? I used to tell people, students, you know, that mm-hmm. um, it's like simile metaphor. Yeah, it's not so different. You can compare things. But to me, metaphors are just more long-winded and they can go on and on. And they're they're usually more, de- I was used to frame it like the author's more dedicated to it when it's a metaphor, it feels like. It's, it's more intense. It's more meaningful. Usually, simile is like a cast off. Here's a description. Here's an imagery thing. Here's something you can just like chew on for a second i don't know if that works as an analogy no definitely i think that's a that's a great analogy actually yeah simile is something that's more superficial is something that you're not necessarily going to delve into but a metaphor is you're saying the thing is it right so personification is saying oh it's like human is humanistic but anthropomorphism is like no this rocking chair is uh a person it is this other living thing yeah yeah yeah, I think that's that nails it. 
Let's wrap this up with reviews then. Reviews are now two-parters because I've added in the Russell French in memoriam. So what's good about it segment? This is when we say one positive thing about what we've read because in the past it's been I've been grasping at straws sometimes trying to come up with like a really truly effusively positive statement. This week, I don't know what to say for this part. It's the whole thing. I don't know. Yeah. I, I One thing that I wrote down because I had wanted to have some specific idea was I enjoyed reading snappy dialogue again. Dialogue mm-hmm. that felt both quick and also layered, conversational, but meaningful. It felt readable and a little more naturalistic. Like I don't, I don't need characters um, speaking in speeches all the time. That can be just exhausting. Uh, and so this felt really good to get back to that. Yeah, and, and even... Uh, play, building up on that idea is if you look at the format for her her stories uh, compared to Gaskell and De Balzac, they had really long paragraphs sometimes. Yeah, and yeah. but when you look at um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's um, actual writing style, you see a lot of like one sentence paragraphs, and you see that her paragraphs even the meteor ones i would say there's no more than like maybe four or five sentences per paragraph it's just she's moving that story along so so well and so succinctly and i think too with just the nature of all three right one is a story of kind of madness and i mean perhaps false madness but sort of a mental deterioration another one is a ghost story and another one is like a I wouldn't say it's a creepy romance, but it's definitely like an aggressive, off-putting kind of, um, again, like swarmy romance. Yeah. All three of them have reasons why you'd want to write them in a way, especially the yellow wallpaper in the rocking chair, kind of briskly. And you want that, you want to ratchet that tension. You want to, I mean, when you write a one sentence paragraph followed by another one, and another one, you're throwing the reader from idea to idea so quickly, which of course can have a purpose. And I think in this case, the purpose is obvious. It's to make these dramatic switches. It's to hit a transition aggressively. It's to put in some contrast really quickly and make it more shocking, more creepy and eerie. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it works really well. The one I was thinking about flipping this segment because I, I assumed or kind of knew going in, you and I would both love this. So I almost thought about flipping this to like the anti-Russ French, like what's bad about it part. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I I don't think we should, but I'll briefly mention that had we done that, I was going to do the uh, exclamation point. Just too many of them, but I don't mind. I mean, it's, I almost, when when she uses so many as she does, I almost start to read them as like, in English, it's almost like we need a symbol between the period and the exclamation point, because at this point, the exclamation point is almost, I don't know, it's like maligned or, or kind of looked down upon. Like almost mm-hmm. no one will use it because it feels so corny to use it. It feels so childish. But I feel like we almost need a midpoint. If she had had that midpoint marker between those two, I feel like that's what she would have been using. Yeah. Yeah, that's so a good that's, point. Uh, yeah, so there you go. Again, didn't it didn't put me off at all, but it was something I noticed where I thought she's using more exclamation exclamation points I've seen maybe in the past year of other books versus this one book. You know, it's just not, especially outside of dialogue. Yeah, I, I would say but, especially in yellow wallpaper, there are yeah. a lot. <laughs> it was actually, yeah, I should have clarified that. It, that's what I was referring to, I think, exclusively. The yeah. other ones I don't think did it very much at all. Yeah. And, you know, it was first-person narration. I bet we could make a case for it and for their existence there too. Mm-hmm. Let's wrap up then with the most pointless formality that we will ever have on this podcast. <laughs> if you've somehow uh, made it through this entire uh, review episode and have, cannot guess what we're going to rate it, then I don't know what you were listening to, but we thank you for joining us. It's a three, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. 
obviously. <laughs> uh, unquestionably. Uh, on our, in our system, in our scale, a three is you should go out and read this. You must read this. There's really no reason not to. I think you can find the L wallpaper for free online, right? Yeah, you can. I, that's where yeah. I lost my copy. I must have given it to a student. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's where I got it. Sure. That's a, that's the most noble way to lose a piece of uh, literature. Just <laughs> give it away. Just trying to recommend things, you know. Mm-hmm. You're doing good work. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't. I'm not really sure what else I could say. It hold the stories hold up on every level. I think uh, as I kind of we jokingly alluded to in the literary corner section. I think going into this, the best way to start is to think, okay, I want to put on my, my feminist criticism lens like that, I think is the best first approach. If you go into the stories, preparing your brain for that, that kind of criticism and thought, I think you'll be the most rewarded, but you could read these for any reason. And I bet they'd be at worst thought provoking. Mm-hmm. And then at best that plus entertaining plus uh, enlightening in some way. Agreed. There we go. That's it, folks. Get out of here. Don't listen to us anymore. Go read the yellow <laughs> wallpaper. At least that's probably, you know, we should do one more part of the review that I'm tacking this on. We're, mm-hmm. we're freestyling it here. Which of the three struck you the most? Was it the yellow wallpaper? Of course, it was the yellow wallpaper. Um, just from a psychological perspective, I'm, I've always been interested in psychology, but just uh, everything about it. It's just, it's the it's amazing. But I, I did really, really enjoy uh, the playfulness of the rocking chair as far as the uh, the comparisons to like the damsel in distress and stuff. I would agree. The yellow wallpaper is the just, you should be culturally ashamed of yourself if you haven't read that. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. Know, in the canon people. Um, <laughs> but the, I, I almost wanted to like re- over recommend the uh, old water. I really like that story. Yeah. Even though it's funny too, because my reaction to the little twist ending it has was like a, an out loud chuckle and thinking like, Oh, that was really corny. But then I immediately thought, but in 18, whatever, 1880, 1860, I was like, that would not have been, that would have been probably like very provocative uh, for a conclusion. And I, yeah, and I don't think it's actually corny. I just, I don't know. We, we've become so accustomed as a culture, you know, we're like post irony state in 2020. So it's kind of hard to do twist with sincerity. Thanks yeah, to M. Yeah. Night Shyamalan for that. Like you ruined the <laughs> twist ending forever. Basically we were, you have like a generation of people who like cannot stand twist endings now, yeah. but that one I think was quite earned. It was really phenomenal, especially again, just considering how it built up to that idea in the story. Um, there's so many little bits that work with that. I, yeah, the ending to that, especially when I was complaining about Gaskell's endings, right. But yeah. the ending to old water, I was so pleased actually with that ending because looking at it through a feminist lens, but also through the lens of taking control of your fate and destiny that really, I I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, peg me as a kind of literary, literary simpleton, if you must, but I didn't leave any of her stories asking too many questions about what I should have just understood. I also left with plenty thinking like, Oh, there were a couple elements in there. I hadn't really thought about or Oh, Mm -hmm. now that I know the full picture, what, how do these pieces you know, play into it. How do they work? And so we've come away from other authors recently where I asked the bigger question, where it's just kind of like, oh, that was maybe incoherent or did I miss, is there some thing I should have picked up on? I know the steel flea, which you did not join me for left me feeling that way where it's like you had 10 ideas in there, but which one mattered the most? Like there was nationalism a bit. There was this 
maybe even you know industrial revolution critique but not really and mm-hmm. there was some kind of class stuff but then they backed off that it definitely wasn't that funny etc cetera, etc cetera. so i you just leave something like that feeling discombobulated a bit this left me with great clarity and also wanting to read more so maybe on to her land we, we might do a follow-up where we read i think the only novel she published right uh there's she published women in economics but i don't know if that's a novel but i think that's nonfiction. yeah that would make sense (laughs) so we um you know watch the feed we may do a book club deep dive follow-up on her land which again i think i found online for free so if you're intrigued by the chat we've had or if you've read the yellow wallpaper and want to follow up go seek that out i'm sure it will not be disappointing at the very worst it might be i don't know maybe preachy did you read a summary of what that story is about uh on the back of the book, it says that it's um it's about like a a utopian society. Maybe it was dystopian. I don't remember, but um of no utopian. Women. I think yeah, right, just yeah, women. Like right. So this is kind of and it's in South America, so it's definitely pe- plucking at that Amazon tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, even going back to Greek history, Greek mythology, warrior tribes. Um, and I guess I say preachy just because the the pitch of that sounds. I don't know. It sounds too obvious in a sense, but yeah. um, gosh, she's she's more than earned to read. I mean, I've, she could do a hundred cool things with it. I bet, or oh. intriguing, thought provoking things. I, I started to read the first chapter just to get a, a little taste to see what it's like, and the yeah. um, the narrator is, is male and a, uh, a sociologist. Okay. So I'm I'm interested to see how she plays with that. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that, that's definitely enough to get me intrigued. Well, until next week when we review, I think next week is, gosh, could it be Gustave Flaubert? 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 Some French name I can't pronounce. Well, that or it's Dostoevsky. I don't, either way, the names are just rolling off the tongue. Um, <laughs> until you catch up with us next week or until we do the book club on Herland, we will see you between the classics. <laughs> <laughs>